Hello there, you beautiful people. I've got a question for you. Do you drink coffee or tea? Of course you do, you beautiful bastard. And that is precisely why I want to tell you about my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. Twin Engine Coffee grows and roasts specialty-grade coffees right on the farms in Central America. And guess what? If you happen to be a snob like me and are much too pretentious to drink coffee, you can enjoy some Keturah tea, my personal favorite, which is made from the dried fruit of the coffee plant. You take you some ginger root, a couple lemon slices, some honey, and a dash of cayenne powder, and you'll have an even sexier concoction than all the hipsters tapping away at their laptops at that high-end cafe around the corner. So again, if you enjoy great coffee or tea... Support small business and this podcast by ordering from TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Again, that is TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. There's a link in the show notes below. And now, enjoy the show. People always say to me, like, okay, if all everything you're saying is true, how is the New York Times still number one, the number one news brand. And I, I always say to them, it's because they did this thing that they're number one. It's because they were ruthless that they're number one. You don't stay on top in the news industry by being necessarily honest all the time. You do it by doing whatever it takes to stay number one. And that's what the Times has done. As always, everyone in between, my name is Clifton Duncan. You have found my podcast once again. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, share, subscribe. I think I did it in the right order. Um, if you love this content, share it with your friends. If you hate it, share it with your enemies. You should especially share it with them uh, if they are regular readers of the New York Times. Uh, friends, I don't know if uh, I'm going to trust the New York Times ever, ever again, because it seems uh, you know, uh, they were founded in the 1850s, um, but by the early 1900s, uh, they were already a juggernaut in many ways. Um, but it seems that from the uh, the rise of the Third Reich straight on through to the 1619 Project, um, they've they've done some, what shall we say, uh, maybe dicey reporting uh, to put it to put it uh, lightly. But uh, our guest today is going to tell us all about that. He has written a, a shocking new book called The Great Lady Winked. It is Mr. Ashley Rinsberg. Mr. Rinsberg, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Clifton. Yeah. Now, I mean, what what on earth uh, prompted you to take on this this juggernaut? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it was, um, you know, just a sense that. You've got this great institution, especially back then. So I started writing this book probably 2006, seven, something like that. Oh, wow. And at the time, the New York, it wasn't like today where, you know, we're all talking about fake news and journalism and credibility, all that stuff. Back then, it was still the New York Times. It was still like the thing everybody has to believe because when the New York Times says it, it must be true. Right. And that kind of, um, that kind of attitude to me never sits well. Like that when you've got this like deity, you know, this like perfect 
institution. I'm, I'm just allergic to that kind of thing where, where it's just, it's too much one way and not enough, not enough room left over for accepting flaws and imperfections and that kind of thing. So, you know, there was that context and I was always interested in questions like that. And then I started reading a book about, about the rise of the Nazis in Germany. And uh, I was in Israel at the time living in Israel. And in the book, the author who was a journalist, um, he was in, in Europe during the rise of the Nazis. His name was William Shirer. He kind of wrote in a footnote that the day that the hostilities broke out in Europe, um, when, when Germany invaded Poland, the New York Times ran a lead story saying Poland had invaded Germany. And I was like, it was like one of those tire screeching moments where you're like, what? <laughs> so I went to look at that article on their archive and it, and it was true. Like they wrote this big article. It was the, the lead story being the far most right hand column of September 1st, 1939, a day's edition of the New York Times. And they have this huge story about Hitler giving this big speech. And then it continues on to the, like the, the back pages. And in those pages, it talks about how. Polish guerrilla fighters had raided a German radio station, triggering Germans, Germany's response. And I looked into that story and I was like, Oh, hold on a second. That's, that was actually a pretty deliberate campaign of propaganda designed by the Nazis. It, it was given a name. It's called Operation Himmler. And they, what they did is they took a bunch of prisoners of war they dressed them up in german civilian clothes to make it look like they worked at this radio station they were not germans and they killed them as if polish guerrilla fighters had raided this german radio station and done that action in when in fact it was the germans who did it and the new york times printed that as news and they they even cited as their only source in the story the German, uh, the Nazi official newspaper, <laughs> which, which you got to think, wait a second, this is 1939. It's not 1929. The Nazis had been around for quite some time by that point. They'd done some horrific things. They were still doing horrific things. The Nazi pr propaganda organs, including the one that was cited, were known to be filled with total and complete, utter nonsense, just flat out lies why would you believe them well even before then, that though but it's hard to cut in but uh, i mean you, sure. you know based on based on your writing the the new york times had a weird kind of blind spot for adolf hitler in general yeah yeah they they kind of this series of articles that were describing hitler in just very weird terms i mean hitler even in the 1920s when he started to kind of appear on the scene it was not a nice guy Right. He was Hitler. He was still Hitler back then. Right. It wasn't like he, he <laughs> went the through some transformation, not the friendliest, like not, not your, the guy you want to sit down and have a drink with. He was a <laughs> lunatic back then too. And he was thrown in jail in Germany. And the New York Times had some local reporting on him from Germany and saying, uh, first of all, that he, they describe him as, um, a lofty patriot. Or actuated by a lofty, unselfish patriot. That's the exact term that they mm. use in one or 
And you're thinking, lofty, wait a second. And then there was uh, a few other articles where they're saying, really, just writing, no source, no reference to anything other than the author of that article saying, he's not a threat. He's going to, you know, he did some crazy stuff in Bavaria where he was doing some rabble rousing and anti-Semitic actions, but don't worry. He's that's, all, that's behind him. It's in his past. He's going to go retire to Bavaria and just be a nice boy. And uh, you think to yourself, why would they say that? There was no reason to believe that you look at like some crazy anti-Semite or racist out on the streets whipping up the crowds and being thrown in jail what would make you think that that person was done with all that yeah uh, especially when you're not relying on any source to believe it so they had this weird pattern that had been established in the 1920s and that clearly was carried over into the 30s um and it got much much worse as they went well yeah it's weird and then you know because my question then or i think a lot of people would ask you know how did such stories get printed? Because I love that you mentioned um, it's, it's Shira, right? Um, yeah. Who, who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Um, you know, you, you compare and contrast. You, you know, you say you look at these um, these stories and saying it's not that they didn't know or no one else knew what was going on in these countries at, the, at this time, because you had other reporters who were actually doing honest reporting on the ground about what was happening. And so then, you know, my question becomes, um you know, how are these stories allowed to be printed and um, and and who is writing them? So I guess the, the first question would be uh, about the the owners of the magazine, because they, they sort of are a recurring character throughout the book through multiple generations. I mean, the, the, the paper is owned by a dynasty, essentially, and uh, just that that gets passed down. And, and it seems each new generation finds a new way to fuck things up. So who who are the, who are the uh, the, the Salzburgers? The Sulzbergers, so yeah, the Sulzbergers are very much a dynasty. They, they was founded by a German Jewish immigrant to America named Adolf Ox and O-C-H-S. And he was, he was, you know, sometimes in a dynasty, you have the founder of the dynasty did something like genuine for a good reason, or at least had like, you know, they were driven by some sort of purpose, which is in his case, that was, that was true. He was a sort of newspaper man, newspaper owner. And he bought the Times when it was failing. It was near bankruptcy or maybe in bankruptcy. And he came out saying he wanted to produce a newspaper that was devoted just to bringing the facts in a very gray manner. And that's why the New York Times has been known as the gray lady, because they had this really flat, boring tone early on. And it was really just like he, he wrote this article or a little like kind of business notice when he bought the paper in the Times saying that he wanted to bring the facts without fear or favor. That was his famous line. And he actually did that. And he did a pretty good job. And the, the tone was very flat. And this was in the context of the early 20th century um, yellow journalism, the, the really just kind of gross, like stuff we see today that was going on a century ago as well. Just sort of muckraking and, and mudslinging, like the worst kind of journalism. And he wanted to move away from that. And he he did. And then you have the what comes after him. So he builds this very successful newspaper, becomes a, a leading force in American media, and then it's got to be passed on. He dies. So where does what happens next? You know, who does it go to? And in this case, it was passed along basically to his son-in-law, who was named Salzberger. And from Salzberger, his name was Arthur Arthur Hayes Salzberger. It gets passed on from literally. Arthur Sulzberger to his son, Arthur Sulzberger to his son, 
Arthur Sulzberger to his son, who's the current publisher, Arthur Sulzberger. <laughs> I sense a pattern <laughs> so, there. Yeah. So you have this insane dynasty where we don't really have that anymore in America. I mean, you got the Bush dynasty was two of them, right? Um, as president, you don't really have this like 120 yeah. year long dynastic power anymore. Like we did with the Vanderbilts and all that stuff. They're and the even, last Even the ones. Bushes were kind of spread out a little bit. I mean, come on. They, we, yeah, they were spread out. They were spread out in time. And they were elected, right? Say what you want. Like yeah, George W. Bush was elected by the people. Nobody elected Sulzberger. He was just appointed. And the Times talks a lot about diversity, a lot about women <laughs> and empowering women. There has never once been a woman right. at the top of the of that company as publisher right. and chairman of the New York Times company. Never once. It's been passed from male heir to male heir for the length of the dynasty, 120 years. So, you know, which is all very fine and well. It's their company. Do what you want. But when you're printing on your newspaper that this is the patriarchy and we need to escape and break the patriarchy and they are a literal pay- patriarchy in the company, you think, wait a second, this, does, this doesn't quite add up. And that's the Salzburgers because they don't really care. I, they don't, I don't think they fully buy what they sell. I think what mm-hmm. it's all about is maintaining their power and their prestige and their wealth. Well, and it's it's very strange because they've um, they've gone through extraordinary lengths, it seems to me, in order to do it. I mean, you mentioned diversity at the paper or the lack thereof. You know, I one of the things that I was shocked by when reading your book is the fact that, as you mentioned, you know, they're they're Jewish and yet they're reporting on, you know, the rise of Hitler and and around the Holocaust um, was I mean, it's just extraordinary. I mean, just I guess we're kind of jumping back a little bit uh, to to mm-hmm. um, to the the rise of the Reich and also to Hitler, but also just the the way that they covered the um, the the atrocities themselves really really begs it, it presents a lot of questions. And what I like that you did in this book is that uh, you know it's not just the ownership, but you go down to the nitty gritty and the individual reporters who are on the ground responsible for making these stories. Um, a lot of people know about Walter Durante already. I think we'll get to him in a second. Um, that's just a crazy thing. But I'm going to back up a little bit and talk a little bit. If you could talk a little bit about uh, Otto, uh, Otto Taliskus. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. And delicious. Um, and and... <laughs> like, like a delicious, like it rhymes with delicious. delicious? That's, oh, that's I, the best explanation I've, re- I've read so far. But I, thought you said... I actually don't know. Oh, I, I, the, name, but I thought I... you said that malicious, um, but but Otto Talicious <laughs> and, and, and Guido Enderis. Yeah. Um, who, who are these guys? Because people know about Durante or about Jason Blair, maybe, or like, the yeah. you know, but they don't know who these guys are. And uh, they need yeah. to be talked about. Yeah, there was one of the most most odd things that I uncovered is that we don't know about Enderis. And Darius was the was the bureau chief in Berlin during the lead up to the war to the war to World War Two um, during the rise of the Nazis. And um, in in the war during the war, and he was an out an out Nazi. Like he was he was known among American journalists for being a Nazi sympathizer. But they called him a sympathizer. But the fact is, he was he was actively supporting the Nazis by reporting favorably on them, and so favorably that the Nazis would actually read New York Times articles on German radio broadcasts without editing them or censoring them because they were, they positioned the Germans in such a favorable light. So this was, you know, included everything from like framing the Munich Accords 
as this like great breakthrough from peace where everybody now knows at the today and at the time then other journalists reporting on it that this was just a method for Hitler to gain enough breathing space to to continue to arm himself and get ready for total war that was something that Shire reported on for the radio when he was on I believe CBS saying this is it this is war those accords were signed and that was the end of it because Hitler would now have free reign to do whatever he wanted on the other hand, the New York Times, led by Andaris, was reporting that it was, a, quote, a freshening breeze across a conference table, God. that this was like, thankfully, we'd come to this great agreement. And the same thing with the Berlin Olympics, the Nazi Olympics in Berlin, where it was a propaganda spectacle. It was made to show the Nazis in this incredible light, these like physical specimens. You know, it was obviously replete with racism. But the New York Times proclaimed in their, in their article, the big article about the games, the greatest sporting event of all time. That's what they, that was the headline. And <laughs> again, it wasn't like nobody knew. Everybody knew. Like when you read other news articles, when you read other coverage, when you read their, you know, the attempts to boycott those games in the United States, um, people understood what was going on, but the Times covered it in the same way. And there were, there were anti-Jewish riots going on in Berlin prior to the games and the times writes these articles about them that like bending over backwards contorting themselves twisting into pretzels to to make it seem as if like these are just like some like hooligans you know some youths having a wild (laughs) time getting a little uh, out of hand that's what they wrote and everyone's everyone else who was sort of a serious participant in covering these events understood exactly what they were they were they were nazi riots so that was the pattern that went on at the Times for quite a while. And it went so far that an editor, a Jewish editor in New York, he was a junior editor, went to the publisher and said, this can't go on. You've got a Nazi leading your Berlin bureau. You're the New York Times. You can't do that. And the response from the ownership was to threaten that man with libel, to sue him for libel Incredible. if he ever came out with that. Because they understood they had Andaris got them great access. He got them better access to Nazi officials, to good scoops or, or amazing scoops than anybody in Europe. He was the best reporter in that regard because the Nazis loved him. That was the trade-off. It was the like a Faustian pact. You know, you you bring us the goods and we'll give you the access. And that's a something that we see throughout the book, like throughout the New York Times just making these these um deals with the devil to stay number one. That's people always say to me, like, Okay, if all everything you're saying is true, how is the New York Times still number one, the number one news brand? And I, I always say to them, it's because they did this thing that they're number one. It's because they were ruthless that they're number one. You don't stay on top in the news industry by being necessarily honest all the time. You do it by doing whatever it takes to stay number one. And that's what the Times has done. Yeah, well, the, to, to say the very least, um, you know, I... I in, in chapter two, you talk about um, Walter Durante, and, and it's interesting right now that, uh, that Russia is so much in, in the headlines. And um, this case is one of the first instances that I and I think a lot of people have heard of. I mean, I, I tweeted the other day about, uh, you know, referencing your book, alluding to your book and uh, um and the malfeasance, I, I might say, of the New York Times. And, you know, this name always is the first one to pop up, which is, is Walter Durante. Um, could you talk a little bit about him? Uh, because he is he is a Pulitzer Prize winning 
uh, uh, journalist. And the, the Pulitzer Committee, for some reason, is also a recurring theme in this book, uh, giving <laughs> just showering his paper with awards. And I, I can't figure out why. But um, can you just mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about about Durante and who he was? Sure. Though, you know, before I jump into that, I, I'd also notice that Autotilicious and um, another one of the three main reporters from the Berlin Bureau oh, right, also right, won right. Pulitzers for their for their oh. reporting on Nazi Germany. Um, they were awarded for that kind of pro-Nazi coverage. And and back to that point, no one has ever really paid. We pay attention to Durante. Everyone knows about Durante. But right. nobody's reported on that before, which I find completely insane. But Durante, yeah, Durante is a fascinating case. And Durante is a very misunderstood case as well, because the story about Durante is that you know, in 1931, 1932, Stalin, being Stalin, wants to consolidate power. So his natural response is to just murder a bunch of um, peasants in Ukraine. And when I say a bunch, I mean millions. The estimates are, are sort of unclear, but they they sort of vary between five and ten million people murdered by starvation. He he created he sort of manufactured a famine so that these peasants would who had they've been members of like these collective farms where they have like part ownerships ownership of farms and they were doing well they were they were sort of excelling and that was a you know didn't fit within the framework of leninist ideology everyone was supposed to be proletariat everyone was supposed to be like you you weren't you weren't owning anything and you weren't going to be prosperous in the new soviet regime and they didn't really want to relinquish that position so the response by stalin was to murder them in mass to commit genocide basically and this is all going on and, and again same kind of pattern where other newspapers were reporting on this famines terrible event and the New York Times reporter, Walter Durante, who's the Russia correspondent, comes out saying there is no famine. He didn't say that I'm not sure. He came out denying that this it was going on, and he denied the reporting of other people who said that it was. And Durante knew that there was a famine. He admitted it to colleagues at the time who recorded it, other journalists. He was very clear about that. He was a very clever man. He was educated at Cambridge. He spoke five languages. He spoke Russian fluently. Mm. He traveled throughout Russia and, and Ukraine. He he would have seen with his own eyes. Anyone traveling those regions, and this is documented in the book, the way that what you would what you would see just traveling through Ukraine, you would see people dying on the street of starvation. You would see children dying of starvation. It's a hard thing to miss when you when it's in front of your face. And Durante did see it, and he knew it. So the question is, what what does it mean? Like, what was this just why did this random guy, this reporter who's a very good reporter, he was that he was the most famous correspondent in the world at the time. There was nobody with his stature. The New York Times, he was so famous. The New York Times did articles about him, like when he had a new book or when he did a speech, they would cover it as news. And you think to yourself. What do journalists love to do? They love to get good scoops, right? That's what that's what drives us. Like you want a good story. That there is a famine going on in Ukraine is a big story. That there is not a famine going on in Ukraine is not a story. So you think, why would he give up the story? It doesn't make any sense. The New York Times has come out in the in the past, so this became a big issue again in around 2006 or seven, where the Ukrainian American community was like very angry that he was given a Pulitzer and the times had kept the Pulitzer. 
and they wanted to give it back. So the Times goes out and hires this consultant who's a professor of history. Lo and behold, the professor comes back and says, yeah, you should give it back. And they say, no, thank you. Um, and their reasoning was like, it, you know, this was just, this was just one guy. He made a mistake. He was slovenly. He was rogue. He was a rogue reporter. And that was, that's the lie. So we think of the lie as being the historical lie that Durante, you know, fudged history, which he did, but it's the, it's the question of why he did it. That's the real lie. And the reason he did it is because the New York Times, along with a lot of other major New York based business concerns, really wanted the United States government to recognize the new Soviet regime as the legitimate government of Russia. Why? Because they wanted access to that government. The New York Times itself may not have wanted that, but they were connected to enough of these interests, business interests to say, this is the way we can get it because FDR was about to step into the presidency. He was governor of New York. He was the one they were, that was being lobbied to recognize the Soviet regime. He was the one that was most likely to do it as president. But you cannot have FDR recognize the Soviet regime as the legitimate government of Russia if that regime had just murdered 5 million people by starvation. It was not going to happen. So what do you do? You have the New York Times tell its star reporter to deny it. And Durante actually had gone to the United States Embassy in Berlin to renew his passport in something like 1931. And he was speaking with a State Department official at the embassy and says to the guy that in coordination between the New York Times ownership and the government of Russia, all New York Times coverage of Russia is it is done in coordination with the Soviet government. Wow. And the State Department official found that so conspicuous that he actually wrote it down verbatim and entered it into the official State Department record as a memorandum. So you, you know that there's coordination going on. And you have this other event after the, um, after the United States does recognize the government of the Soviet regime as the government of Russia, which has happened, I think, in 1933 or 34. After that takes place, there's a huge gala event celebrating this milestone at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. It's got both ambassadors, the ambassadors to Russia and the ambassador to the United States. It's got the presidents of every major railroad, of every major bank, the son of Teddy Roosevelt, basically every power player of American society is there. One man gets a standing ovation that night, and that was Walter Durante, wow. because everyone in that room understood that that recognition would never have taken place had Durante not done what he did. He took one for the team. And that is the bigger story here, and that's the bigger lie. It's the story that never gets told about Durante, which is that this was not just one guy. They pin it on one guy because that makes it really convenient. But this was an institution committing a historical crime. Amazing. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's absolutely breathless. You, you know, you look at, you think of journalists, or I guess there are a lot of journalists who think of themselves as, uh, you know, people who are there to speak truth to power, and yet here you have one of the biggest and most substantial influential newspapers uh, on the planet um, directly aligning itself, not just with power, but with one of the most murderous and corrupt regimes that um, in human history. It's, um, it's very astonishing <laughs> to say the least. It, yeah, it's, it's evil. Um, so then, you know, and then in terms of, uh, 
you know, another thing that I like about uh, your book is that it it gives you a sense of the influence and impact because we're not only talking about, oh, you know, there's flattering coverage or we're, you know, we're lying about these atrocities and, and covering for governments. I mean, you, they're actually having a direct uh, influence on geopolitics and even on policy. Um, yeah. And um, what's also interesting is that, you know, the, the sort of the, the motivations of a lot of these people, you know, I think more sort of conspiracy minded people might say like, oh, there's all these corrupt journalists who are, you know, lying for governments. And there certainly seems to there certainly appears that that was happening. But then there's also, you know, I'm thinking about a guy named Herbert Matthews who you wrote about who basically you say uh, made Fidel Castro a star. Um, and it seems like he was sort of chasing more romantic, uh, going for more romantic ends, which is sort of, uh, he was like, seemed kind of sincere in his appreciation of Castro and his regime. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, Matthews was this like real romantic who, um, he sort of went, he, he'd palled around with, with Hemingway in, in Ethiopia, and I think Spain even. And he went to seek out this rebel in in Cuba, it, around 1957 in Castro by that point was kind of irrelevant. Like he was hiding out in the mountains, no money, no men, no guns. And Herbert Matthews gets taken on this trip. He's like blindfolded and like driven around in circles and driven up a mountain. And, you know, it's this very romantic thing. And that's what he really loved. He loved this romance and he gets introduced to, to Castro and Castro is charming and charismatic and he comes back and he prints a story basically about this democratic savior of Cuba, this rebel. And overnight, it just changes the entire tenor of the conversation about Castro. It makes him a star. And it wasn't one article, of course. It was article after article after article saying the same thing. Democratic Messiah. Of course, there was no... There's no knowledge that, that Fidel Castro was going to be democratic in his approach, and obviously he wasn't. And that was part of the problem. You just have this guy spinning a myth. He's just telling us a, a great fable. And, you know, yes, it was one guy who was sort of enamored, but it's not just one guy. And it sort of touches back to the Durante thing because it's layers and layers of editors. It's the publisher who was who was on friendly terms with Matthews who actually – gave Matthews a personal loan and who allowed Matthews to be at both at one time a reporter and on the editorial board, which was against their regulations. Hmm. So you have all these exceptions being made and it's being made by the the family, right? By the Salzburgers, the Ox Salzburgers. They, because this is such a top-down organization, they can do whatever they want. They own the paper. They control the paper still today. So that is essentially what happened. It was it was the Times, the New York Times, and a bunch of other magazine newspaper editors that bring Castro to the Amer to America for the first time after the revolution had taken place, and in doing so, they sort of preempted the State Department having an opportunity to do that through official channels in a way that could have really smoothed the way for uh, diplomatic relations with between Cuba and the United States. So you have this kind of like interference and this intervention on an editorial level where you make the myth of Fidel Castro, you, you, you bring him to America and Castro went on that trip. When he comes to America, he goes to New York and he goes to Times Square where the, the New York Times building used to be and up until whatever floor it was to personally thank the publisher of the New York Times for what they had done for him. Cause he recognized that 
he would not have been where he was without them. And that's something Che Guevara has spoken about as well before. He said mm. Herbert Matthews did more for the, the revolution, for the movement, than any frontline fighter ever could have. He gave them significance. He gave them relevance. He gave them a sense that these people, like, that they were part of historical destiny. That was not something that had ever been associated with this, like, very kind of ragtag group of fighters. So that is really uh one of these kind of astonishing things that that happens and it got so bad that the united states senate eventually started to take notice and they started to understand that the new york times was having an impact on geopolitics not for the better and they started to to hold some inquiries into this and um the times quickly changed matthews out for another reporter um to to lead that that to head up that beat but it was already by far too late by that point. And again, this continued well into to the 2000s. I mean, every time Castro would come back, you'd get the New York Times doing this like celebratory coverage of Castro, which they did in the early 2000s as well. And this guy is a murderer, a dictator, a lunatic. This is a guy who holds thousands of people, political prisoner in Cuba or, or did when he was around. And he persecuted um, LGBTQ people you know, it, it on and on and on and on. And this is the, the person that the Times chooses to, to praise. So a very shameful episode as well. Very strange, hard to understand. Uh, it's just it, it, every, I mean, you know, like I said, I've read the book, but, uh, it's just, it's just even more and more shocking to, to hear. It's almost, um, I almost don't know where to go next, but I feel like I have to jump into this topic, even though we're kind of jumping around mm-hmm. uh, the book and in, and in, chronological order because uh, I just flipped over in my notes here to uh, uh, your fifth chapter, um, mm. which is uh, which specifically talks about um, the reporting and the Holocaust. I mean, we, we have to go into this because it's one of the most yep. extraordinary. Um, and again, I'm surprised that this isn't this this isn't uh, this is not spoken of as much as like the Holodomor, the a.k.a. the Ukraine famine. Um, yep. I, I didn't know about this, um, but. And this is one of those instances where it doesn't seem like sort of what you were hinting at before, where it's not just one person. It seems to be it was like a systemic denial of the Holocaust, you know, if if that's not too strong a term. No, that's not too strong a term. That's it. That's exactly what it was. Um, You have the most consequential genocide of that decade, probably of the 20th century, first mechanized genocide in history. And the New York Times puts it on the front page six times in six years you think holy shit like what what does that even mean that's it it doesn't compute right you think there's got to be an error in someone's tabulation of of the basic facts here but that it's actually what happened and you know I, I talk about as one example they did a report about the the murder of 700,000 Jews in Europe so 700,000 that's like you know, more than were murdered in Rwanda during the genocide there. And this happened in a, the space of a few months or a year or something like that. The Times puts this on page A5 or A12, whatever it was, in the back of the paper, and they give it like five inches of column space. And on the front page that same day, they have a story about a single man in Iceland who'd been killed. And you think, what is going on when that is the case? And what it was is that the Times... Um, again, this all goes back to the family. It all goes back to the, the Salzburgers. They were, 
at the time a Jewish family. They no longer are. Um, they were desperate not to be seen as a Jewish newspaper because that would be bad for business. They really wanted to be seen as like your, your, you know, everyday average <laughs> elite <laughs> news institution and that they hadn't been, um, they hadn't been twisting the news in, in favor of the Jews. So their solution was to not cover it. And that also, there, there was also an ideological bent there as well, because they, you know, we think of like Jewish people as Germany. Uh, they were part of a group of German Jews who believed that there is no such thing as the Jewish people. There's only something called Judaism, which is a, a style of worship, just like an American might worship in a church. So a Jewish American just worships in a, in a synagogue instead. So for them, it was like an empty category to say that there was a systematic mass murder of Jews didn't mean anything that for them, it was just, it was just Hitler's war and doing horrible things in general. And that also led them to, to, um, really lobby against Jewish immigration to Europe. I mean, from, from Europe to the United States at the time, they really came out strongly against it, which again, for the New York times today, you think this is like the most pro immigration newspaper ever. And at the time they were, they were really doing their, their best and working their hardest to keep Jews out of America. Um, so that was, that is really what happened. I mean, it's, there's a, a lot of more texture to it and you, you can really go and, and look in my book. I talk a lot about how they did it and how they denied that this was going on, but they mostly did it by just not talking about it. It's yeah. what we call the bias of omission rather than bias of commission and bias of omission in news. It's one of the most powerful forms of bias because you don't know that it's there because by definition, it's not, it's the stories that don't get covered and it's what shapes the news agenda because it's, it's the stuff that gets left out. And, and then by definition, what is, what makes it in that shapes our perception of the world. Totally. I, I call these people the, uh, the reality cartel, um, uh, and, and their their control over yeah, that's a how, how we perceive things. Yeah, yeah I think um, there was one point you mentioned that they they wrote an article, um, and they only had the word Jew mentioned one time, or Jewish appeared yeah. one time. I mean, just a complete sort of whitewash of what was going on there. Um, yeah, the, the, I think there was a big article about Auschwitz after the liberation of Auschwitz, and and I. I think they might not have even mentioned the word Jew in that article. And that was actually a policy. That wasn't happenstance. The, the, again, Ox Salzberger family, they had this policy where they did not want the word Jew in the newspaper. Same, same principle there. It's like, it was an empty meaning, empty category, had no meaning for them. So don't say it. And they also forced a lot of their editors with very Jewish sounding names to, um, to abbreviate their names. Like the very famous editor of the Times, Abraham, Rosenthal, they forced him to use his initials AM just to kind of like make it a little less obvious <laughs> that this guy was a Jew. And they also prevented Jews from rising to the very top of the masthead. And that was something that, um, one of the most famous New York Times reporters ever, his name is Gay Talese, still alive. He write, wrote in this great book of his about the Times that there, there were a number of, of editors who were on the rise at the Times who were destined for the very top of the power structure there and they were prevented from getting there because they were Jewish by a Jewish family. It's one of the most insane things, but that is exactly what happened. And it's, it's a pattern. And by the way, it persists until this day. So um, Fox news, 
a reporter there named Hannah Grossman. She just did a big story about the New York Times' very troubled relationship with the Jews today. It doesn't, it's not just about what happened historically. It's about what they're still doing today. It's about the demonization of Israel, about, uh, they did this very, very ugly hit piece against, um, Hasidic schools of New York City. Um, it, over and over and over, it's relentless. And, and this is something that I talk about more generally in terms of the way that media creates narratives. They don't do it with one or two or three articles. They do it by pounding away relentlessly even in the face of facts, even in the face of of the ethical impropriety that they're committing. And the Times is just relentless. No matter who puts pressure on them, no matter who speaks out against the practice, it does not matter to them. They are building that narrative, come what may, that at all mm-hmm. costs. And and that's something that's traced. It's got deep roots. They they It's in their DNA at this point. And that's why that's how I explain to people the anti-Jewish sentiment in this perceived Jewish newspaper. They cannot not do it. It is part of who they are. That's so that's so insane to hear. Um, you know, war uh, is uh, is a backdrop to a lot of these um, to a lot of this nonsense. Um, and you know, I mentioned before about the uh, having effects on policy and geopolitics. Um, you know, again, it's another story that I never heard of or that I wasn't aware of. But their coverage of the Vietnam War. And uh, y- y- you mentioned one reporter in in particular, David uh, Halberstam, who again another star reporter. It's like all these sort of stars, um, or you know, sort of celebrity reporters, uh, and wind up at the the center of all of these. And um, I, I what I read about Hal- Halberstam and uh, and his uh, I guess his accomplice Neil Sheehan, um, and and their involvement in, in Vietnamese politics, uh, I thought was rather uh, rather extraordinary. Yeah, they they were very both Haberstam and, and Sheehan. They were young, sort of brash, and they come into this war environment, and they're they're really anti-war, which was not unusual for American press corps at the time. But the problem is that they weren't just anti-war; it's that they were very specifically against the South Vietnamese government, um, GM, and and they they thought of him as evil, and they wanted to get rid of him, <laughs> which is crazy. But it's true. Um, they were very vocal about that. And they worked at it. They worked hard. They they really started producing, again, this is back to what I was just talking about, the narrative. The narrative was that the GM government and GM himself was was a lunatic. They were crazy, that they were bloodthirsty, that they were they were out to just kill. And that's not true. They, they, these people were in a very difficult situation. They weren't perfect. There were probably um, some offenses that were were committed that were were ethically morally wrong. I I imagine as there are in war, but the bigger problem is that it was not the place of a New York Times reporter to say whether or not that's the case. Their job was to just go and report the facts, but they came in with a very specific narrative. So they started pr- putting out these stories to sort of prove their point. And among them was this story about something like 30 Buddhist monks. The, this was the one narrative arc that they put out was that the, the government, the South Vietnamese government was massacring Buddhist monks across the country because the Buddhists in the country pl- had obviously a very strong political base and of, and as well, um, abroad, if you sort of paint this picture of mass, um, mass offenses or, or crimes against the Buddhist community, you would sort of gain support for your cause. So they had this one story about 
30 Buddhist monks being murdered in a pagoda. And the New York, the United Nations came and did an investigation uh, not long after the story and found every single one of those monks alive. Not a single one had been killed. But the damage is already done. Like a story like that gets imprinted in people's minds, especially when it comes to the New York Times. Jim is murdering Buddhist monks by the dozens. That's crazy. And you think you read that and you're like, oh, my God, yes, get rid of this guy immediately. But that was not true. And JFK really trusted uh, Diem. And, and JFK also had very clear plans to get out of Vietnam. He wanted to get out by the late 60s. That plan hinged on having a stable South Vietnamese government. When Jim was eventually overthrown, which he was, those plans were scrapped. And Kennedy admitted as much. He said that that is the end of our pullout. We are here to stay. Um, and in a large part, that was because public perception influenced not just the people in Vietnam, but it influenced um, public opinion back home, especially in the United States government, because there was a contingency within the government that wanted this overthrow, this coup d'etat to happen. Um, part of it was the CIA, and you emboldened them when you got the New York Times working on your side and and influencing, influencing public opinion that way. You strengthened their cause, and it got to that point where, you know, the, they got to that proverbial tipping point where that is actually what took place. Uh, it's it's really it's really insane. I mean, I just the the, the it, it's hard to imagine how a single newspaper could not not just to mention a single reporter can amass that much uh, influence um, to where they're they're having this sort of impact uh, this global impact in in that way. Um, there's so much here. I mean, we haven't even, you know we didn't even touch on we were talking about World War II. We never we didn't talk about um, the denial of um, the the effects of the atom bomb um, in in Japan, but I think um, you know in our time together, because I know you, you got a hard stop. Um, the the sort of like Gulf Middle, Middle East, um, lots of reporting there um, that uh, shall we say is a little bit uh, shysty. And you mentioned the uh, this fictional tale of the slaughter of these monks, and um, you know it, it's sort of a nice segue to talk about this fictional tale of the killing of this one young man. Which um, caused a uh, let's say a lot of upheaval in the uh, in the Middle East uh, in the um, in the very beginning of the aughts. Can you talk about that a little bit? That was um, in the early, very early part of the Second Intifada in, in Israel and the Palestinian territories around 2000, when the Intifada just starts to out to break out, and um, you know there was a lot of violence. There there was a lot of of sort of daily gun battles between Palestinian terror factions and the, and the IDF. And in one of those cases, um, a, a young boy named Mohammed Al-Dura came to this very dangerous intersection where there had been a lot of fighting with his father and uh, to buy a car. And you think, okay, what? what is strange. It's a strange thing. It didn't comport with some of the facts, but whatever. That, that's, that's what they said happened. He's there and they end up, the father and the boy, Aldora, end up pinned behind this concrete barrier. And uh, the father is shot, and then the boy is shot. And this is caught on video by a, by a stringer. So it was a someone working for a French news company um, who then puts it on the news, saying the Israelis had killed this boy. And the New York Times, the very next day, comes out with an article saying the Israelis had killed this boy basically in cold blood. The reporter who wrote that story for the New York Times was not there. 
There was no investigation at that point. There couldn't be. It was too short of a time span. They had no witnesses other than um, some of the Palestinians who gunmen who were on the site that day. There, there was just no reason to believe that that was the case, right? You've got shooting in every direction. You've got, you know, who knows how many, a dozen or maybe more shooters. And that didn't matter. Uh, the New York Times was off to the races. And again, I'll return to this, this idea, this theme that when you're building a narrative, you don't just do it with one report. You don't just say this happened. End of story. No, you have the, you have the New York Times write about that fact, seed that fact in opinion pieces, in editorials, in other news items. Today we would have it in podcasts. And that's what we've seen with some of like the recent the recent uh, narrative building, like with uh, the death of Officer Sicknick on 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 January 6th, I went and did an analysis. They mentioned that Sicknick was killed. The New York Times mentioned that he's killed on January 6th dozens of times, dozens. We know, of course, he was not killed. He died of a stroke after those events. And that's a very different story to tell. Yeah. But to build that narrative, you got to hammer away. you got to put it in multiple formats. you got to talk about it in podcasts. you got to have, in this case, you know, Judy Miller or whoever it was, Maureen Dowd, write about it in her, her column to to sort of posit it as as a given, as a fact. It's not something you question. It's beyond question. This happened. Now, what are the conclusions we draw from it? And that's exactly what happened with Mohammed Eldora's death. It was just taken by the New York Times and projected into the world as a complete fact. There was never a story ever that came out and said, is this what happened? Do we know this happened? How do we know this happened? So it later transpired that there was a French, um, a French Jewish man who came out saying that the the French reporter who initially who initially did the story about the boy in France and the boy's death had committed this like act of gross malfeasance by saying this happened because there was there was not clear evidence that the Israelis did it the French journalist sues this French Jewish guy for libel and then it goes into the French court system to to figure out what happened in that process they have a French forensics ex- expert. Or he might have been a ballistics expert. Whatever. He was an expert on, in breaking down these types of scenarios. He was not connect, connected either to the Palestinian or the Israeli side. He had no interest in that. He's just a French expert who comes out saying there is no yeah. physical <laughs> possible way, given the Israeli position, that that bullet could have been fired by an Israeli gun. Yeah. The Not physically possible was the outcome. And the New York Times did not report that. They kept quiet. Narrative stayed in place. And that was that was the most important thing. That narrative went on to inspire jihadis around the world. It inspired and justified the murder of American reporter Daniel Pearl. Um, it became a rallying cry. And that was mission accomplished. That's really what they, that was the intended effect. So, yes, that was that was one of the mo- more horrific because it's personal. And you see that through a number. It wasn't just that, of course. Like there were a number of things that I talk about in the book that show the New York Times tipping their hand, tipping their their what we call on Twitter their priors, their biases, and their prejudices. Yeah, you know, in our to to listen to the impacts these kinds of stories have. I mean, there, it's not only um, 
there's the personal stories like with with uh, with the reporter who he was beheaded by jihadis i believe right um then yes. there's the 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 mass deaths sort of being covered up um which really shape public sentiment and then um but i think for the last few minutes with uh, that i have with you there's also the sort of socio-political and ideological subversion that's taking place um, and the literal rewriting of American history. Um, a lot has been written yeah. about the 1619 Project. I have, I have clashed. I'm muted, I'm pretty sure, on Twitter by the, uh, by the uh, author, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, I, I am not one of her favorite people. Um, but, you know, again, you know, the, the Pulitzers, they, they rear their ugly heads again. Um, but, uh, I remember yeah. when this piece came out and now, you know, it's being shipped out into, into education systems, you know, books based on this quote unquote mm-hmm. reporting and journalism. And, um, this is one of those stories because I kind of came onto the scene in the wake of uh, George Floyd's death. Um, and I was just, you know, I saw how these sort of anti-racist changes were going through the industry and, you know, but the ground had kind of been laid by work like the 1619 project. And, um, you know, it, 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 just as much as briefly as you can, I know you got to go soon, but we, we, we got to get into this story because the way that the, the response to it, I remember it was heavily, heavily criticized, but the way that, that the times handled it, I thought was also very interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, the, you know, the 1619 project came out with this, this, this big, um, issue of this New York Times magazine. It was the whole issue dedicated to this one idea that America was born, was founded in 1619 when the first slaves were brought to the colonies and not 1776 when independence was declared. So what they're saying there is pretty clear. They're, they're reframing. They actually use these terms to say they want to reframe American history in terms of slavery rather than liberty. And, you know, I actually, I, I take the point like yeah okay that i get what you're trying to say there and you you want to say we have underemphasized the impact of slavery on american society and politics and it's time we stop doing that and that's fine there's there's i mean is that a newspaper's job i'm not sure it feels more like history to me but whatever what went wrong with the 1619 project is that in order to make this gigantic maximalist claim that America was born in slavery and therefore all the structures and all the infrastructure and all the cultural values that that drive America as we know it today are remnants of slavery, of slaveocracy, to make that gargantuan claim, you've got to make some gargantuan, um, you've got to posit some gargantuan facts and that's where all these historians got really upset because those facts were not true. And that included facts that the New York Times had checked with their own fact checkers. And that was in, including a very prominent historian of African-American history from Northwest University who told them that one of the key facts that the American Revolutionary War was fought to protect slavery is just flat out false. And they published that claim anyway and that's where you think hold on a second like you're the new york times the new york times is saying our credibility rests on our ability to check on this stuff and to go to the experts and that's what they did and the experts said this is not true and they published it anyways because they it wasn't and this is again narrative building it wasn't about the facts it was about the conclusions that they wanted to draw this is halberstan and sheehan all over again they came to it with a predetermined conclusion it wasn't about following the facts to some conclusion it was about 
taking the preconceived, prefabricated conclusion and then sort of getting the facts in line to make sure that they supported that conclusion the way they wanted to. And that to me is the big issue here. So when you're saying truth is not what we, we all kind of do our very best to approximate or to find together in a collaborative way. For the New York Times, they're saying in that moment, truth is what serves power. Truth mm -hmm. is what serves the power that we are trying to seize from the people that we think are morally wrong. And that's an extremely dangerous idea because it doesn't take very long for your enemies on the other side to realize, oh, wait a second, truth is now a weapon. Okay, I'm going to pick up that weapon as well. I'm going to stab you back. And this is where we are today in American society. Truth is now a weapon. Truth is wielded in order to hurt the other side. We're no longer at that point where we say, well, you know what? The New York Times had a point there and they made some good arguments. And um, and some of the critics have have responded like that. You know, I forget the guy's name, but uh, I think it was Phil Magnus and, and the American Enterprise Institute. He was a very harsh critic of Nicole Hannah-Jones and the project. But he often, you'll see him on Twitter often saying like, actually these few claims can really be substantiated by historians. And even though they kind of sound radical, like we should give them some, we should hear them out because they're interesting. Mm. That is the spirit of, I think, cooperation, collaborative approach to truth that the New York Times rejected with the 1619 project. That's why I find it so, so damaging, not because they wanted to think about slavery in a different way, which I think is great. It's, it's something, it's like, okay, challenge our assumptions. That's what you're here for. But they did it by um, subverting our understanding of truth. And just as you were pointing out, Clifton is that when the response came, Nicole Hannah Jones, her response was combat. Her response was just go to the ground, go to war with anyone who dared to challenge her. She would ridicule, ridicule people on Twitter, call names, block people. It was just horrible. Yeah. And the New York Times tried to shut down that debate as well. And, and they also fudged the facts about how that project rolled out. They made claims that were really not true about the project. And they didn't do the honest thing of saying, you know what, let's listen to the historians here. Let's listen to the dozens of academics who've come out saying from across the political spectrum coming out saying this is unsupportable and let's make this right. And let's continue to have the conversation that we were having, but let's do it the right way. They didn't do that. They did the opposite. They did the thing that is rooted in power, institutional power and they did it in order to win that argument. And they kind of did win the argument. I think maybe for now, I think people are kind of on the other side rallied against it. A lot of prominent thinkers and historians did come out and say, this is just utter bollocks. But um, yeah, it was a, quite a shocking episode, I think, even for the times. His name is Ashley Rensberg. The book is called The Great Lady Winks. Uh, I will put your, I know you gotta go. I will leave your, uh, your Twitter handle, um, in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to, uh, plug before you get out of here? Um, no, I don't think so. But thank you for, for this great talk. And I think this is like, this is the conversation, you know, that I love to have about media. And I think it's the conversation we're kind of all having about truth in journalism, news and media. And, um, I think we have a lot, a, a lot to do and a farther to go on this conversation. It's not over anytime soon. I think it's a good, it's good that we've begun to have it because for a long time we weren't having it. So 
I think this is all great stuff, and I, I'm I'm very optimistic actually when it comes to media and journalism.、Um, even though there's a lot of reason not to be, I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful that we're stepping into a better time and a better era for for journalism. Thank you.